Welcome to the Grand Rapids Local History Podcast. I'm Matthew Ellis. I'm Travis. And I'm Jessica Kroll, joined today by my basil plant trying to survive in the desert. On today's episode, we talk about gardening and farmer's markets in Grand Rapids and how school children grew irresistible produce. Have either of you uh, done much gardening? When I was a kid, my dad used to grow Atlantic giant pumpkins in the garden. Um, so he would like have them carved into giant jack-o'-lanterns and like I could sit on them and stuff. They were super cool. Um, and then in the past couple of years, when I lived in the Grand Rapids area, uh, my brother and I would have like raised garden beds in the backyard. They weren't super successful, but we did get a lot of mint, jalapenos and um, green bell peppers. But that's about the extent. Yeah, uh, you've you've showed uh, us some pictures of those pumpkins and they they're giant. Those are big, big pumpkins. Yeah, they were over 400 pounds, I think, both times. That sounds really cool. Um, Yeah, same thing. Like, my family had a garden growing up um, over at my grandparents' house. And, um, I mean, we grew a lot of food. And it was, I don't know if it was hard work or not, but it was something you did as a kid. And you weeded and you you picked the beans and shucked the corn and all that stuff. Um, (laughs) And then I didn't do anything with that for some time. But... uh, we were one of those folks that decided to plant a garden this spring. So we built some raised garden beds and fenced it off to keep the bunnies away. Um, and also our cats can hang out in there. So they love it. Nice. But yeah, we're, we're getting some food. Um, peas, carrots, radishes, some lettuce, which we can circle back to. Um, some little peppers. It's, it's been delicious. I had a few, um, as a kid, I had a few raised garden beds in my backyard and we had, uh, tomatoes and, and peas and stuff, but it was mostly flowers. Uh, we did have one that was my favorite. It was a, uh, raspberry bush. And, uh, I looked forward to picking that every year. Oh yeah. We have a, a little raspberry bush on our deck, which gave us like 25 raspberries this year, which was perfect. Just grab a little snack. That's great. I am growing a basil plant indoors this year that my aunt gave to me, um, but I think I managed to kill it, and I'm not really sure how to revive it, so I don't know what to do with that. I always felt real bad about killing plants, and I still I still do because there's like that sense of failure, but um, <laughs> someone said to be a master gardener, you have to kill a lot of plants, so apparently, <laughs> apparently I'm on the right track. <laughs> So don't feel too bad about killing, killing them. So how did, what, Matt, what's the history of um, gardens in Grand Rapids? Like how did the, West Michigan has a really rich um, agricultural community. Like it's plentiful for, you know, fruit trees and stuff like that. But like, what does Grand Rapids contribute to that? So Grand Rapids was, was surrounded in the early days by farmland, um, kind of like it is today. And there, there were only a few ways to get fresh uh, produce. Um, they, there was the corner grocery stores. Um, there was, there was almost one on one on every every um, block. They were, they were everywhere. Um, then there was like hucksters who would who would have little stalls downtown that would sell um, various produce. And then there were the markets, 
um, mainly um, the downtown market. Um, and it was the, the first market uh, was put there in 1875. And this is where all, all the surrounding farmers would, would bring their, their goods. It was kind of like a wholesale market. Um, so there'd be beef, there would be, um, physical items like, uh, like baskets and stuff. Um, and then there would be produce. Um, and it was located on Monroe, um, kind of near Hastings street, just North of Michigan. And I believe that that's where the uh, post office is right now. Okay. Uh, and Hastings street, that, that was, that street's been gone for some time. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's it still exists to Up over uh, the hill. Yeah, over the hill. Yeah, but at um, back then it went all the way down uh, to okay. Monroe. Cool. And then uh, eventually that market moved to one of the islands in the Grand River. Um, they they call it Island Number Three. Is that island still there? Um, kind of. It's it's between Wealthy and Fulton. And it's where, like, the Grand Rapids um, public services buildings are, the fleet facilities, um, the Grand Rapids lighting uh, department, and then, like, Parks and Rec. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Punk, Punk Rock Island, is that what it's also known mm, as? No, no, that's that's the smaller one that's across okay. the river. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know where uh, Charlie's Crab is? Mm-hmm. On the, on the river it's, it's kind of in that area too okay yeah cool. there was yeah there was um uh a couple of things on that island there, there was also like a baseball field um where with like uh, bleachers and stuff so people could could go uh watch baseball jeez down there and and i'm assuming there was some kind of shuttle or a ferry that would just buzz people across or was yeah, it like a footbridge um, or a walking bridge so that there was a, a few bridges um but yeah, in the early days, it was a it was a um, canal between the island and uh, the main main city. Um, but it wasn't very it wasn't very big, and and they filled it in uh, pretty quickly. And um, so there was we've got these great photos of of the lines and lines of stalls with uh, horse and buggies parked behind them. Kind of like uh, we see the cars uh, parked uh, on um, the Fulton Street Farmers Market or uh, the the other markets around town. That's really cool. So this is you know 1875. We've uh, we're moving forward, and um, once it's on the island, it hangs out there for a little while. Um, what happened in around 1900, around the turn of the century? What what kind of happened with with markets at that point? Um, so the the downtown one stuck around for a while. Um, there was a, there was a big need for food in general um, at the turn of the century. There there was some evidence that there was a food shortage. Um, strikes are around the the country made it harder for food to be delivered. And so that island market kind of went away um, in 1910-ish when the city started building their um, 
public services buildings on the island. Um, but then other other markets opened up. So the there was the Fulton Street Farmers Market that opened in 1922. A few years before that, the West Leonard Street Market opened in 1917. Uh, and the, the Fulton Street Farmers Market is the only one that's still around. Okay. Uh, and we... We've talked briefly about farmers markets or you know some aspects of the farmers markets, but this isn't this episode doesn't specifically focus on on farmers markets per se. We're we're really trying to figure out gardening and 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 how that happened. And so what you lead up to is the you know the turn of the century. There was some some strikes and food was hard to get. Um, gardeners and things of that nature weren't able to to maybe get to the market. Um, and then the market faded away. Uh, how did how did we kind of pivot from focusing on getting our, our our produce from specific markets to maybe growing them in our backyards? Like you mentioned, there there was uh, kind of some strife. Uh, food shortages were were pretty common, um, and so a few different organizations kind of popped up to promote home gardens and um, public gardening. Um, the, the Grand Rapids Herald uh, reported um, at the turn of the century that there was actually a shortage of gardeners um, going to the markets. And so grocery stores couldn't re- restock. Uh, hucksters weren't able to get any more produce to sell. And so people kind of had to start looking elsewhere for their food. Um, and one of the main organizations was the Ladies Literary Club, um, which in 1903 um, started promoting public gardening as a way to uh, kind of fill that food gap um, and also to kind of spur a uh, appreciation um, for for the environment and, and for um, kind of the, the look and feel of the city. Um, so, so they uh, created a committee called the Civic Health and Beauty Committee um, that oversaw public gardening programs. So this is uh, these, the Ladies Literary Club has done a number of things uh, in, in around the turn of the century. They started doing public gardens. How did that uh, mm-hmm. how did that go over and kind of what was their besides increasing the amount of food that was available, maybe becoming more self-sufficient as an individual, um, what were some other benefits and how did that, how did that come to be? So um, one of the benefits is that uh, it kind of helped the uh, park system uh, come about. Um, But then they also focused heavily on school gardens. And so working with children to teach children how to, um, grow their own food and to tend gardens. Um, and it was, it was really an extension of the classroom. Um, I, I don't know how many elementary schools or high schools now have like home ec classes or shop classes or, or auto repair classes, but it was kind of in that vein back then that, that they would have like a, a gardening program. Nice. I think that would be kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember my el- elementary school had a a little tiny garden um, out f- out front for a while. 
I think in elementary school, I remember learning how to propagate seeds um, in class. Like we'd start growing them in little baggies and then take them home to plant them. But that would have been so much cooler to like actually have a school garden to learn how to garden from that. With hopefully an adult that knows how to garden. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to handle that. Aside from kind of providing food and making making the area nice uh, with like flowers and uh, gardens that were well tended. The programs were also kind of geared towards fixing bad behavior in children. There was some, I don't know how I want to put this. Um, the, the school gardening programs were first geared towards uh, the working class and minority neighborhoods. Um, and so a lot of times we might think of these neighborhoods as having children that due to economic circumstances might have both parents working. Um, and so the, if, if the kids weren't at school, they might back then they might, uh, have been out in the neighborhood causing trouble. Um, and so the school leaders thought that the garden programs could, quote, fix defective children, um, which seems a little iffy in today's, today's <laughs> world. Fair <laughs> statement. And I feel like every kid is, is going to create some kind of problems. I mean, that's, right. that's the point of a child, right? Is, is to get up yeah, yeah. Goof um, things up. And so um, they they hoped that the school garden program would kind of ingrain in the children an appreciation for their surroundings um, and to be better stewards of their neighborhood. And so the in 1903, the Civic Health and Beauty Committee distributed seeds to all the schools, mostly um, mostly to the elementary schools. So that first year, they distributed 3,000 seeds, um, things like lettuce and parsley and potatoes were a big thing that I saw, um, in early Grand Rapids. It was a big staple of the, of the Grand Rapids diet. Nice. I want to, I want to figure out how to plant potatoes. I, I like potatoes. It's a root, right? It's a fruit. Is it a root? Like a, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is definitely a root. <laughs> Yeah, I think you can just put a potato in the ground and it will literally just continue to grow. I'll, I I, I'll I think keep we've you like all posted. <laughs> I think we've discarded potatoes in the yard and they have started to sprout before. Did I, yeah. did either yeah, did either of you do the like the experiments in school where you made like a potato battery? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely in the lemon the lemon battery. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, everyone makes it sound so easy, and then I go to do it, and <laughs> I'm like, to be a master gardener, you need to kill a lot of plants. <laughs> That's what I come back to. Oh, hey, I did. Um, no, I think it should be easy. I took some uh, green onion that I had cut, and they were probably about an inch tall, and I stuck them in a glass of water, and they're probably about a foot high now, and they've just wow. been sitting. They've just wow. been sitting on my windowsill. So, but the basil um, can't make it. But no, the basil's not, it's not doing well, but the, the green onion, I have a plentiful harvest. There you go. <laughs> There's a measures of success. 
The only plant that I'm keeping alive right now is a uh, monstera plant. Oh, um, tell us about cool. that. Oh, it's just this little, um, little like rainforesty type plant um, that I've got. Like t- the only window in my house that gets like a ridiculous amount of sunlight is like right behind the refrigerator, <laughs> and so I've got it like tucked away in the corner. So I can't see it. I can't, I can't look at it. Um, but I can reach around to, to put water in it. And so I'm keeping that alive. Maybe that's the best way to go about it. Cause I feel like uh, I overindulge our plants in food and water and <laughs> just let them be for a week. <laughs> um, so I could have benefited from some of these turn of the century garden programs, undoubtedly. Um, where where were these uh, geographically? Where did we start out with some some gardens? Uh, so the first uh, school garden, uh, one of the first, was at Second Avenue School, um, which uh, Second Avenue was renamed Pleasant Street Southwest, and so that was um, just south of Wealthy, and then just west of Granville. Um, and uh, the Habitat for Humanity building is right there now, and so so most of the students. Um, would have been um, working class uh, from working class families. Uh, the, that area was kind of surrounded by um, factories on either side, and the um, school grounds. It, it wasn't a very big garden, but um, they had radishes, onions, lettuce, parsley, and uh, potatoes. Nice. That's a good haul. Yeah. Right around that time, um, so. One of one of the things that kind of piqued my curiosity about gardening was uh, while we were shopping this spring for seeds, we found a seed called the Grand Rapids lettuce, and that hmm. surprised us because I had not heard of that. And it, it's a thing; it's not like you know someone in Kent County is like that's the Grand Rapids lettuce. It's a it's a big deal. Oh wow! And, and uh, Eugene Davis is known as the father of forced lettuce. And um, so we bought some of his seeds, some descendants of his seeds. And uh, he started right around then in the turn of the century. And um, he had a space. His first greenhouse was right on Kalamazoo Avenue. And I'm not exactly sure exactly where, on the south side of town. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's this crazy lettuce that's meant to grow in the cold and they just kept crossbreeding and the ones that survived in the cold, they'd breed the next summer. And, and over time we've gotten a pretty hardy lettuce and, um, you can buy it right now and plant a little slice of Grand Rapids history. And we did. And it, uh, it's described as bright green with wavy frilled leaves. And that's exactly what it is. Is it pretty good? Yeah, it's a leafy lettuce. I mean, yeah, it's great, it but it, it grows. Comparable to like, comparable to like romaine or something like that. Um, like more like salads. a, more like a bib. Okay. I think. I don't know a whole lot about lettuce, but we it did trim it and eat it. So I thought that was really neat, and um, th- that this guy, like I said created these seeds he propagated them and they're literally the standard throughout the united states vegetable markets and um yeah it's kind of cool it's it's wild how many how many 
like noteworthy things that we wouldn't really like think as coming from Grand Rapids. So 20 schools in 1910. Mm-hmm. Um, any, are there any uh, noted areas that are, that are floating around? Um, so th- there was one at West Leonard that, that we have some really great photos of at, at the city archives. Um, the most um, renowned one, though, was at Oakdale School, which started its school garden in 1913. Um, this was the biggest by far. It was a 90 by 90 foot garden. Wow. Um, and the, the principal at the time of Oakdale was Francis Van Buren. Um, and um, he uh, partnered with the Chamber of Commerce to um, kind of cultivate this garden. And then so half of the lot was used as a community garden and the other half was split into individual lots for each student. That's um, really neat. Yeah, so each student got their own got their own lot and to cultivate and plant. Um, and then yeah, they, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't grow tomatoes. I would grow lettuce and cucumbers, but not tomatoes. You don't like tomatoes? Not a, not a tomato fan, unless it's in a pico de gallo or a salsa or a ketchup of sorts, but not just a tomato. Yeah, I li- I like my tomatoes on a pizza. Uh, in the form of sauce. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I made a homemade salsa last night with some produce from the market down the street. Um, It's not too bad. It sounds really good. Perfect. Sounds delicious. Um, But, okay, so if these students have individual plots in this garden, were school years different um, back in the early 1900s? Because how would they take care of the gardens over the summer? Do they come back? Like what's going on there? I, I think they would come back. The The school districts were a lot smaller back then. Um, and so most of the students were within walking distance and most of them did walk. Um, I mean, 1913, there was no very little vehicles, um, I believe, on the on the road. And. Uh, in that area, they probably weren't able to afford uh, horse and buggies, um, and so and so. I'm sure they just walked during the summer. Um, I also suppose that maybe has to do with um, that they're like growing up in the city rather than on a farm. Because I'm my guess is that if if I grew up on a farm in 1913. I wouldn't, I, I would be helping on the farm during the summer. So I wouldn't be able to go back to school, but it probably helped that these kids were in the city then and able to take care of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably gave them something to do during the summer. Right. They, they also learned how to uh, can some of the vegetables they grew. Um, so the chamber of commerce um, funded uh, like a canning program for them. Um, and that uh, land on uh, Oakdale's campus is still used as a community garden. Did did you did you hear about their slogan? No, uh, what was their? We, uh, we can. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> so the the space has still been used as a community garden, and that's yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Uh, the. Kalamazoo area south of south of yeah. Kalamazoo. Yeah, so it's um, 
just south of Hall, I believe, and then just west of Kalamazoo. Nice. So that got some uh, that got some notoriety. Is is that the case? Yeah. Um, so it received national attention. Um, the there was a professor at the Michigan uh, Agricultural College um, who published uh, an, an instructional instructional manual um, for other states to and other cities to put on school gardens, and he kind of used Oakdale as kind of like the example. Um, and, and it was called the Grand Rapids home garden plan for school children. Um, nice. That's pretty neat. Um, did, uh, in, uh, Michigan agricultural college, that's the precursor to Michigan state university, correct? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Okay. Well, that's kind of neat. I wonder how many, uh, if you know of anyone who may have read the Grand Rapids home garden plan for school children, maybe you should send us an email and let us know. Grand Rapids local history yeah. podcast at gmail.com. And then there was, there was another organization around the time um, that the school garden program was, was starting. And um, that was a Kent garden club. Um, so that was Kent County's, um, kind of a club for agriculture. Did they have similar goals or were they more, more, more focused on um, or less focused on students and more about, you know, maybe folks at home? They, they still kind of had similar goals. Um, they, sorry, my dog is running, <laughs> running around again. Hi, Pepper. Uh, um, so that they, they taught the, the Kent garden club taught children. Um, but they also were helpful for adults too. So they put on a lot of programs for adults as well. They kind of went above and beyond the, uh, um, school garden program. Um, in ni- they started in 1913 and in 1919, they started, um, a junior gardening project. Um, so they partnered with 31 public schools around, uh, Kent County. Um, and so they, they probably worked with the ladies literary club, um, for the schools in Grand Rapids. Um, but it, it sounds like they went, um, quite far around Kent County to, to set up these programs. And that's really neat. And, and what's kind of surprising to me is that, I mean, like you said earlier, Kent County is still fairly, I mean, there's an urban divide there where there's cities and then mm-hmm. it's fairly rural. So I think it's neat that maybe they reached out to some more, uh, uh, city center areas or town center areas in these rural spots that maybe did need some help and weren't connected to the land by farming or something of that nature. Yeah. So during, during this time, um, world war one started, um, and in Europe and in the United States, there was a, a huge food shortage. And so there's a desperate need for, for gardens. Um, uh, President uh, Woodrow Wilson and some other uh, um, individuals pop- popularized the phrase, uh, food will win the war. And so they put a big emphasis on trying to grow home gardens and 
community gardens. And this was a, uh, it's, it's fortuitous that this started, that these programs started around the turn of the century and just a few years later. So by the time World War I starts becoming a thing, there's already folks like the Kent Garden Club that are out there and informing people. And, and to me, that, that seems really fortuitous that they were able to naturally ramp up these these home gardens. Right. And, and they, it, it was very fortunate. Uh, they, they had like the infrastructure to, to lean into um, to send out uh, seeds to families and, and stuff like that. Um, I love infrastructure. <laughs> so was the food being grown kept like in the homes that had the gardens or was it to help other people um, if like their husbands were off to war or something like that? I think it was both um, the individual homes, but then there was evidence that vacant lots were being used by um, groups of families to grow food, to send um other places. And there was evidence that some food was sent to Europe to help um, alleviate their needs. I, a small segue here, but I think it's really interesting to see, and we've talked about this before, how much I appreciate, Matthew, you're, you're pulling back the lens and taking this like, you know, almost hundred year, longer than hundred year view of ideas and processes and, and the, the adage that, you know, history repeats itself, but um, you know, folks in Detroit are doing and have been doing very similar things on vacant lots, you know, it, and it's, and it's looked upon as a really neat idea and it mm-hmm. is. And I think it's also important to, to realize that, you know, hundred, hundred X years ago, that was a thing we were doing. And just that, that appreciation of that wider lens, I think is something that I, I always, uh, that I always circle back to when you bring up these topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not only were we doing it back then, but on a pretty wide scale too. Um, in 1917, um, Eva McCall Hamilton, who I believe we mentioned in the suffrage episode, mm-hmm. um, helped the, uh, or kind of convinced the city commission to approve a resolution that gave the city comptroller power to distribute over 300 vacant lots uh, in the city to individuals, families, or other groups um, that wanted to grow their own food. And, and so in, in just uh, numbers, uh, over 5,000 acres were split into 28,000 lots, um, and those uh, had food production and being worked on by over 30,000 families. Wow. Um, wow. So... That's an incredible amount of land and an incredible amount of families. Yeah. Um, there, there, was, there was a huge push. Um, the, there was a U.S. National War Garden Commission that was created, um, and it, it had a, a campaign called the War Garden Campaign. And then the, there was a United States Garden Army that was launched by the Bureau of Education, um, that kind of promoted the same school gardens as a way to help the, the war. Um, the Grand Rapids Public Museum actually has a really cool poster um, that shows um, Lady Liberty uh, kind of sowing a field. Um, and it says, plant and raise your own vegetables, every garden a munition plant. Um, and they've got it hanging up in there in the, in the hallway at the community archives. Wow, that's really neat. 
And it goes to show you how, uh, like we are talking earlier, I mean, they had the infrastructure to lean into and it made these things possible. And I don't know that you can necessarily, I don't want to overstate how important a garden might have been in a military conflict, but you can't understate it either. And I think that's really interesting that we were able to start our, start production. Right. Right. And, and, you know, the, the psychological benefits of having something to do during that time, um, can't be underestimated either. Yep. Get outside, get your hands dirty, get close to that soil. The, uh, board of education at the time funded a, a full time, uh, citywide garden supervisor to kind of help help people get started that sounds like a job that would uh that would require someone that can do more than grow basil <laughs> uh, i'm not qualified <laughs> yeah I'm, not, I'm certainly not qualified so we made it through world war one and gardens helped us make it through yeah yeah where, where um, did we go from there so the the, after after that time period, the Ladies Literary Club, um, their uh, health and beauty committee didn't really stick stick around, but the uh, Kent Garden Club uh, went on and is actually still around today. Um, and they've been they went on to be pretty influential in in other Grand Rapids garden um, aspects. In 1931 they petitioned the city of Grand Rapids to adopt the iris as the official flower of Grand Rapids. Oh. What's the history of the iris? Do we know? I have no idea. Neither do I. We'll look I'm it not up. sure. Yeah, they, they gave out uh, 10,000 irises uh, during the dedication. Um, and that's a bulb, correct? That, that the plant is grown from a bulb? Yeah, yeah I yeah. believe so. Okay, I'll to try to bring that back around. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I couldn't find anything today that, that stated that that was our official flower. Like Wikipedia didn't have that uh, listed as our. We need to we need to make some phone calls, send yeah. some emails. <laughs> yeah, let's get some irises planted. And then in 1936, the Kent Garden Club organized a garden center uh, in Grand Rapids, and that was. Um, at the Grand Rapids Furniture Museum, which opened in the same year. Um, and that building um, was on Fulton. Uh, the, there was a local lumber, lumber uh, kind of baron, and he really wanted to preserve the history of furniture in Grand Rapids, um, but then also partnered with the Kent Garden Club to have like a garden center in the building. And that's part of uh, GRCC's campus now. Wow. Neat. Yeah. Um, and it was one of the only places in Grand Rapids at the time that they could find that like adults could go to, to find helpful garden information. Um, and so they, they put on garden workshops. They had like a library of gardening books. Um, and then they organized tours around Grand Rapids at, for the various gardens. Um, and it, it had a quite a long life. It ran for over 42 years. I, in my mind, the garden tours involved everyone picking a weed. <laughs> so you can sign up for a tour and have your, your garden weeded mostly. That's what I would have done. That's how they paid their, their ticket. Sure. Uh, then a free cucumber <laughs> out the door. 
Um, they, um, I, I, I thought this was really interesting. In the 1950s, the Kent Garden Club partnered with Mary Freebed to make what they called dish gardens. And it, they didn't specify what those were, but I thought maybe little tiny little mini gardens that they could have in their uh, patient uh, bedrooms. What a, what a nice thing. Yeah. Sure. I, you can grow a lot of things in a little mini garden, I would imagine. Yeah. Maybe now, an iris. Now, now they have those little, little uh, terrariums. Have you seen those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, a little bright spot in your room. Yeah. Very cool. Um, they, they also worked with uh, the Grand Rapids Public Museum. Um, this was after the um, Furniture Museum um, donated all of its collection to the Grand Rapids Public Museum. And so the, the Kent Garden Center started working more heavily with the Grand Rapids Public Museum to put classes on for uh, students about gardening. Do you know if those classes are still offered or have they been offered in some time? Or I'm not sure. I know there's some classes around town. I, I know um, the uh, Wemiak, is, is that? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they put on um, classes in concert with the East Town Community Association on potting plants. Oh, okay. Um, That's cool to see that that information is still being disseminated. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the Kent Garden Center was solely a women's organization, uh, until 1985. I just found some information on the iris in Grand Rapids, if you are interested in hearing a long paragraph about it. Yes. Okay. So this is from kentgardenclub.org slash history. Um, Kent Garden Club recommended that the city adopt the iris as the official flower in March of 1931. It was selected because it honored the memory of uh, Louis Campau, the French trader who founded the city. The iris is France's national flower. Um, uh, like you said, Matt, everyone attending the flower show received an iris to plant and 10,000 were given away um, in anticipation that Grand Rapids would bloom. Proceeds of the show were used to plant an iris garden at Wilcox Park. Women planted iris along highways leading into Grand Rapids. Uh, they were planted from the bridge in Cascade to Wilcox Park. The club urged homeowners on Cascade Road to plant iris in front of their homes. Iris festivals and parades followed in the years to come, and in 1941, as the U.S. was going to war, a three-day Iris festival featured an American flag made of Iris. In 1988, when the club celebrated its 75th year, the city of Grand Rapids honored Kent Garden Club for its community service and once again proclaimed the Iris as the city flower. Today, the Iris bloom, um, Oriental Iris bloom bright purple along the banks of the Grand River at the Public Museum, where club volunteers volunteers uh, maintain the gardens and you'll notice several of the club's publications feature an iris and that an honorary award often is given to a deserving member who represents the iris i for inspiration r for research i for initiative and s for success it's really cool yeah i i wonder if um i don't know the history of the tulip festival but i wonder if that coincides with that at all yeah I wonder if they were searching for something to compete because the right. Oh yeah, the tulips certainly you know harken back to Holland, uh, the an- their ancestral home, and 
still grow millions of tulips. So I think that was more of a um, an homage to their to their history. Um, that's all the history about tulips that I know. Yeah, it's interesting that they've kept up their uh, um, tulip time. Um, we should we should start an iris time uh, here. here. Um, well, they they had the three day iris festival following or uh, during World War Two. So, oh wow, that's cool. I, I think someone who who can influence decisions of that nature. We've had some great ideas on just a handful of episodes. <laughs> and I think that someone who can influence these decisions really needs to find this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Start implementing things. Maybe we can start at low key and uh, next spring give out irises or give out irises for Christmas and be like, no, no bonuses this year. Yeah. <laughs> Here's an iris. Here's an iris. Um, I did want to touch on um, orchards a bit. Um, there was um, a pretty not well known, but in in the historic historical community in town, there's a well known orchard that used to be on the grounds of the wastewater treatment plant that had a number of uh, apple trees and, and various other trees. Um, and I just found a map of it the other day. Tell us more. Um, it was a little to the west of the plant, and uh, the wastewater treatment plant was meant to be um, kind of a park for people to go to. The The grounds were meticulously cared for, um, and and it really did look like, like a park um, back in the day. And a lot of people went there and um, had picnics uh in the in the orchard there and that's where our current wastewater treatment plant is located yep oh so it's long gone yeah yeah okay well that yeah. that would uh they that still have be. yeah they still have one of the original buildings from the the prior wastewater treatment plant um but the the wastewater treatment plant buildings were kind of dispersed throughout what looked like park grounds Nice. That's really yeah. neat. I, to me, public works buildings, schools, city halls, things of that nature, libraries, just had more of a value seemingly placed on them, um, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know that that would ever necessarily cross a city planner's mind to incorporate wastewater treatment with a park these days. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure yeah. there's a great reason for it. Yeah, I, I think they're they're returning to some of those roots um, with their um, uh, they've got like a wall of of like a, a wall garden at the wastewater treatment plant now that they're cultivating. A neat. Um, and then they're working on um, creating in the I think it was in the 30s or so they had uh, created a, a fertilizer. Um, that was like a Grand Rapids sold uh, fertilizer. And so I think they're trying to re revive that. Wow. Um, yeah. I think we're right in. Uh, we need to, to collaborate with those folks and get the Iris Festival going. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. 
Um, there was also a, a tree nursery in a couple places. Um, in, in 1905, the Common Council voted to establish one at John Ball Park. Um, and this is where if, if a tree needed to be planted, they would, they would go to this tree nursery and pick out a tree and then bring it to somewhere in the city to plant. Oh, neat. And they had one at uh, Amon Park, too. Amon Park? Amon Park? Yeah, and, and there are still remnants of that, if I'm not mistaken, in Amon Park. Or at least there's a neat variety of trees there that you might not see elsewhere. Cool. Very cool. Um, and uh, the Friends of Grand Rapids Parks uh, do a lot of tree um, planting guides and, and care. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. Uh, Friends of Grand Rapids Parks does um, does a lot of work. They've worked with uh, the Mayor's Greening Initiative, and they'll do volunteer work to clean up spaces and to plant trees. Uh, most years, they will plant trees, and it's mm-hmm. it's really neat to to see a volunteer group kind of continue the work that was started, you know, 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. The the last little bit I had here was um, uh, we might have touched on a little bit, but nutrition was kind of a central concern in starting some of these public gardening initiatives. Um, there was uh, the Grand Rapids Department of Public Welfare had a health division uh, that would go around and measure children's heights and weights and then kind of made estimates who was supposedly under the normal height or who was under the normal weight. And they supposed that that was an indication of poor nutrition. And so they, they tried to create these programs to educate students on proper uh, eating habits. Yeah. Maybe you needed to grow more spinach um, if you were on the, the lower side of that scale. Yeah. Um, so they had, uh, in, we've got an annual report in the city archives uh, from 1923 to 1924, and, and it kind of gave some, some metrics. They put on 388 nutrition classes at the, at the various elementary schools um, throughout the year. And so these probably coincided with some of the uh, school garden programs that were, that were being put on. The, uh, the department was also in charge of inspecting uh, the produce and food to make sure it was okay to eat. Um, so they had like a milk inspector and they had a um, produce inspector. And in 1923, 1924, they condemned uh, 25 pounds of miscellaneous vegetables, eight quarts of strawberries, and 314 packages of seeds were also condemned. Um, so they they weren't they weren't uh, I'm sure that the 25 pounds were very egregious examples of terrible vegetables and eight quarts of strawberries same thing just yeah in the scheme of things not a lot but they were out right there. right um, and they also um, the the department had quite a lot of power too um, during um, or in uh, 1916 when the new charter was um, approved. Uh, the director of public welfare was to conduct the food inspections, and it said that um, he shall have the charge of the sanitary inspection and supervision of the production, transportation, storage, and sale of food and foodstuffs. Um, 
And I thought it was interesting that that this is kind of what the FDA does now right. with our with our uh, produce and making sure it's safe. Um, but back then it was on a very local level. Um, the the milk and food inspector um, was was it said it was he was given full police powers for for his work, and so he could he could arrest people. It, it sounded like he was he was given quite uh, quite the authority over uh, food food stuff. What would be an instance of the food inspector arresting someone? Do you think? Oh, I don't know. Um, selling a bad carrot or something. I, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, there was there was a uh, division of weights and measures, and so things were sold by by the pound. And maybe somebody was trying to get away with selling a pound of apples and calling it two pounds of apples. I don't know. Okay, or maybe somebody like painted a potato red and yeah, the yeah. an apple. <laughs> Right. What a disappointment that would be. <laughs> I love potatoes, but I would be disappointed. Yeah, it would be so jarring. <laughs> uh, the uh, um, and the last little bit here was um, the welfare office also just distributed food to the needy, um, and so I had that in 1923. They distributed 15. 186 carrots, 133 apples, and then 47,945 potatoes. So quite a lot of potatoes. Yeah. That's a lot of A lot of potatoes and uh, not so many apples. Yeah. Which, uh, given the Kent County area, the, the general area, you know, with, you know, all kinds of fruits and trees and orchards it, it seems like maybe there should have been more apples but also uh i'm not sure when that area came about yeah i mean there was there was certainly orchards in that time maybe it was just because potatoes were cheaper sure um that's that's one of the, the main staples that um they provided for people during the great depression we have these these um photos in the archives of just truckload of, after truckload of potatoes being delivered to Grand Rapids. Uh, so they, they came from uh, the surrounding geographical areas? We th- These weren't potatoes that were grown on, say, a, a shared lot on the school? No, I don't think these were these were Grand Rapids potatoes. Okay. I thought you were going to say you guys had preserved potatoes in the archives. <laughs> that would be a moldy potato. <laughs> we did find uh, somebody left a... Uh, uh, like a McDonald's cherry pie in a box once uh, oh, no. from like 2004. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, we found it last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did that go? It was, it was not good. Not it did yet. not taste great. <laughs> you tasted it? No, no, I'm just joking. Oh, <laughs> He's like, it tasted a lot better than, than the potato painted like an apple, though. Right. <laughs> well, I, I know that we, we've only touched on uh, the tip of the iceberg lettuce, if you will, <laughs> um, on this topic. And I'm sure we could, we could probably keep going with gardens. Um, I, I really appreciated the information, the history that you've given us. And I am. Uh, I'll say it every time. Maybe I won't, but um, <laughs> I, 
I do appreciate the the wealth of knowledge that you bring to to fairly simple questions uh, that are asked. I, I was I was happy to research it. This uh, this was a really fascinating topic. I, once I started getting into it, I, I just wanted to dig more. Ah, um, so many vegetable puns. We've yeah. done well. Uh, I also like that. I'm I'm in my mind. I'm starting to to realize that there the islands along the Grand River that are no longer there were there. Uh, just kind of this restructuring of of the city. I'm I'm working on that, and I appreciate your help there. Yeah, Jess, what was your favorite part? I think it's cool that students were able to learn about gardening, and that I I think it's especially fascinating that like the students had their own individual plots um, in that in that large garden because that's definitely something that I think would have benefited me and I would have found interesting when I was a kid. And maybe my basil plant wouldn't be half dead now if I knew how to properly garden. I I echo those sentiments. I I don't know that I have a green thumb or a black thumb. I'm still figuring out what color it is. And uh, like I said, we're we're working on it. I have managed to keep all of my other plants alive. I think I have, or I don't, I think I have 15 plants now. Um, most are succulents and cacti, which I found that neglect is the best thing for them. So I just ignore them and they're thriving. Um, and then I have a beautiful uh, desert rose that is uh has some leaves right now and I have a Moses in the cradle, which is a beautiful purple and green color. But, um, for food, I have not been successful. Yeah, we, we certainly wouldn't, uh, we're not canning. Although we did pickle, pickle our first batch of radishes. Uh, hmm. and I'll tell you, that's a pretty good radish. Um, yeah, so we're kind of learning the seasons. Like radishes happen really fast, and other things can happen really fast if you start them inside. And we did start some plants and seeds inside. And um, one of our cats uh, contributed to their demise <laughs> by tipping over some some starter containers. Uh, yeah, so we're still working those bugs out. Yeah, we've lost many a uh, many a plant to uh, Indy. Just chomping, chomping on the leaves. Yeah, knocking them over. Oh, okay. Um, we do in our in our little raised garden bed area. We have a small spot that's not very raised, and it is filled with catnip and cat grass, which is a huge hit. Oh. Yeah, they love it. They they run outside and just gorge themselves on catnip and and cat grass. Um, if you guys could grow anything at home, what would be your number one choice of something to grow? I love dill. I do too. It smells amazing. Yeah. Um, they they used to. Um, so I took a bio a botany class at Aquinas, and we we each got like a mystery seed that we had to grow and then figure out what it was. Uh, and I had dill, and so I did a bunch of research on it, and I find I found out that like in the Middle Ages people would chew on dill because there's a, there's a very small amount of like caffeine or something in the dill that kind of wakes you up. And so they would use it as kind of a stimulant back in the day. I, other folks have, have started getting mystery seeds. Uh, it's recommended you don't plant those. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure what I would grow because this is like a hypothetical um, that we'll probably tackle next spring. And I, I agree with with Matt Dill is a wonderful herb, but I also want some potatoes and probably some corn, which is you know those are just staples. Nothing fancy. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I would grow a lemon tree. I think there's nothing better than fresh lemonade. That sounds cool. Would you also grow a, like a small plot of sugarcane? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> no, this sounds like too much work for me. <laughs> sure. Uh, so we have some sources uh, for today's episode. Um, a lot of the um, garden information and uh, early school gardens uh, came from Jason Otto, who is a lecturer uh, who has taught at both Aquinas and GBSU. Um, and then we have uh, the information on the Kent Garden Club came from the Kent Garden Club's website. And then uh, the information about Eugene Davis and the Grand Rapids lettuce came from historygrandrapids.org, the website for the Grand Rapids Historical Commission. Well, I, I feel like as we're, as we're winding down, uh, I feel like I've personally grown uh, during this episode. Yeah, I think uh, the conversation really bloomed. Oh my gosh, guys. <laughs> We've sprouted some, sprouted some neat ideas. 